Hello and welcome to Something Who Podcast, episode 25. And after a pell-mell schedule during the first part of the year, it's actually been a few weeks since we were with you. So, hello and it's great to be back. Today it's our Not Vampire special, um, (laughs) which brings us a first foray into the Seventh Doctor era with Curse of Fenric and the Eleventh Doctor story, Vampires of Venice. And it's welcome back to our two most regular contributors, Paul and Giles. Hello. Hello. Hello, Richard. Hello, Giles. Hello, both. Uh, we feel like repeat offenders here. <laughs> and just recidivists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so how are you? Bearing up? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. My my hair gets ever more pert with bouffants by the day. I can... I can vouch for this. I've failed to persuade these people to do a video um, podcast, but mm. I have the privilege of being able to see them, and um, they're both looking extremely hersued. <laughs> trust us, trust us, listeners. It is a privilege. <laughs> so, if we, if we discuss Curse of Fenric, oh, season twenty-six, recently out on Blu-ray. I, I wonder which of the many versions you chose to watch. Uh, I watched the special edition all the way through, and then I watched episode one as well, for reasons that may become clear later. Hmm. I picked the special edition as well. Somehow I forgot it was on Blu-ray, so I, I hunted around the house for the DVD, um, <laughs> which I think shows you what state of mind I was in when I, when I undertook the research. Giles? Hmm. Uh, yes, I, I actually watched the original episodic version for probably the first time since the original version of the special edition came out. Was it the VHS? Mm. Did the first mm. recut of it? And I thought, because I saw the, the special edition at the launch event for the Blu-ray at the BFI, was it was it last year? I'd know everything. Time, I think so. Time, think time is playing weird tricks even more than usual. At the I moment, remember time. Yeah, we had <laughs> time, didn't we, back in the old days? <laughs> yeah, um. I I'd miss it if I could remember what it was. Yes, mm. yeah, it's all it's all a bit like no, the. Um, I'm trying to remember why I I watched the special edition, and I think it was just because I thought it would save me. I was running out of time, and I thought it would save me about five or six minutes of not having the end credits each time. Yeah, and and yeah. opening credits. <laughs> if, if 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 it wasn't for the fact they inserted an extra five or six minutes in there, oh no! What a false economy! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I think on the the Blu-ray the special edition is even more special, isn't it? it am I right in thinking they've inserted even more stuff into the, or is it or is it uh, just the same as a DVD I one? Don't, I didn't think they had. No, to be honest, they've and, tidied and up a few of the a few of the amendments. I think. Maybe done a bit of regrading and a couple of, and tweaked a couple of the special effects that they hmm. tweaked last time. I honestly cannot really remember all that much detail from. It it did say twenty nineteen on the on the credits at mm. the end, but right. but but precisely what they've done to it. I mean, I have to admit that having seen the DVD special edition, it didn't look all that different to me. Mm. I think ultimately there are only three versions, aren't, aren't there? There's the original, the did J and T do the original cut? On extending on VHS, which put back in so many minutes of footage, and then when mm. it came onto DVD, they did it properly, and it was twice as you know the same amount again of extra footage. But I think they've put back in everything they can now. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think so. I seem to remember there was some talk at the time, presumably at the time of the VHS, that not all of it had gone mm. back in that could. Can anyone remember the reason? I think it was just 
I was going to say they did it on a budget, but um, maybe I'm thinking mm. of Silver Nemesis, which genuinely was done on an extremely tight budget. Mm. And hmm. I wasn't really collecting the v- the VHSs, so I can't really comment on that. I do remember the, the sort of coming to the DVD and and uh, watching it at that point. Hmm. I'm reading up here. Apparently, apparently Nick Mallett and Mark Ayres worked up notes originally for the for the original BBC video release. Right. Working out that there could be a you know and and for the additions that were made to that and they they worked out an original like movie edit at the time with all of the additional mm. material in it but it doesn't um there's no particular info here on why they cut or why that never came to pass on the first first mm. part of the special edition and then yeah and then they they sort of put in the full 12 minutes of extras and mm. so on. I guess the thing I wanted to say about it is I don't actually think it's very good. Oh! <laughs> the, the the special edition in that having watched episode one again with its intercutting, fast intercutting mm. of, of the, the boat coming in at the start and the Doctor walking into the camp mm. I think it has a much more heightened sense of drama than what we get in the special edition. Do you know, I I'm not going to go out and a all the way out and say I prefer one or the other uh, wholeheartedly but I, um, as much as I enjoyed seeing the extra scenes, and I do like the special edition and as much as I realised that the uh, original broadcast version was was never intended to be cut down that heavily I had a great fondness for it mm-hmm. um, it worked it it wasn't butchered it was very cleverly cut down mm. I, I don't remember there being any really important plot points or hanging threads that were created by being cut down that severely, which you can't say about some of the other stories mm, from, yeah. that, from that era. The, the one episode I distinctly remember enjoying the pacing of originally it was the opening of episode four, and mm. I, that genuinely had a right uh, clip to it, which mm. I think it lost in the um, in extended version. So mm. you could probably say that all the way through. So it's, um, it's difficult. I'm glad we've got both, mm. I suppose I could say. Yeah, yeah. Watching the, watching this version, I was surprised at how well it hung together. I was kind of having not seen it for ages. I was kind of half half expecting, but half expecting it to be a ghost-like type situation, and thinking, have I, have I just having read the you know, have I been interpolating all the stuff into my understanding of the story from the from the extended versions and and reading the novelization back in the day. Mm. And all of that, and is that the only reason why I, you know, really like it and don't have mm-hmm. any issues? But, but to be honest, yeah, no, I felt it. It stands up perfectly well on its own. I don't think there's anything that's mm. massively missing. Maybe all the stuff with the house guest stuff is clarified at the start right. of at the start of episode one. You know that they're expecting the Russians to be turning up. Yeah, is, is made much more explicit, and then that that is completely glossed over. I think apart from one apart from one line is it when Sorin finally turns up in the right when Sorin finally yeah. walks into the camp which I, I isn't I'm not sure, I'm not even sure which episode that's in it might even be in episode 3 or something something like one that of the, yeah. one of the soldiers system and the house guests the house guests have arrived yes that's the only mm. that's the only thing and I didn't have any particular issue with that because it the elsewhere in the plot it's made perfectly explicit that the that the Russians are expected, yeah, and that it's mm. so. The, fa- the fact they have this name for them is really neither here nor there. 
I think part of the reason it, it still works with uh, quite a lot cut out is that, um, that there was stuff they were able to cut out with that effect and plot because there's so much in it. It's also part of what one of these one of the story's strengths. Mm. It's stuffed with ideas. Mm. I just I was astonished watching it just how much there was yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah. Again, that was the extended version where extra little ideas and, and <clears throat> riffs on riffs are just spinning off in <laughs> from every little scene. Well, especially you know when you. When you get to one of the new scenes, which uh, are still not as familiar even after <laughs> 17 mm. years of the... Ex- well, no, hang on. If you go back to the VHS, I guess I've lived with... In theory, I've lived with these extra scenes as l- almost as long as the real, thi- real thing. Mm-hmm. But um, somehow they still f- feel slightly uncanny when I get to them. Yeah, very, very, very inventive. Mm. But not ill-disciplined, I don't think. Almost everything in there is in service of the, the major, major theme of the story. Mm. I, I very strongly remember watching this first time through. I mean, it was while I was at university, and I was fortunate to have a friend at university with a video recorder. So um, I got to watch season twenty-six via the, the benefit of him having having recorded it because it would never have been on at, at a convenient time for me to watch it live. And I think you know a lot of of the McCoy era is is sort of very hyper it's not really realistic it's very um lots of big ideas but not very naturalistic and and, i mean this one isn't particularly naturalistic towards the end but certainly that that first episode and with some of the stuff that goes on and you feel like you're in a war movie at the start particularly Mm. with the fast intercutting and i remember thinking uh, that's that's a very different feel of um of a doctor who story and you know certainly um i got the sense in watching that first episode at the first time it first went out, oh, this, this is this is something a bit different. This is something new, and and, and I like it. Mm. I'd agree with all of that, and um, without wishing to <laughs> down by with faint praise, some of the other stories of, in this era, which also seem to be reacting against the um, the hyper real aspects of series season twenty four, things like I don't know, Remembrance of the Daleks, for example. Mm. Some some of the stories hark back. Actually, I think I'm just going to say the Ben Aronovich stories, both of his hark back to uh, another age of Doctor Who. Yes. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're not ever completely harking back to a golden age because he's cleverer than that. Hmm. But but I think their, their nostalgia, even though I like both their stories quite a lot in their different ways, I think the nostalgia still feels a bit superficial to me, whereas Curse of Fenric doesn't hark back to any... But previous era of Doctor Who it's take it's it's moving on from the the experimentalism of the previous couple of years but not but in a, in a new form I think mm. of mm. A, rather than a trad backward looking form which again is why I why I rate it so very highly mm. it's uh yeah it's interesting that you know and I guess because you know we, th- we think again it's one of these things where you've got to take it of its periods this is the first historical that is set. I mean, we've had the 50s for the holiday camp, haven't we, in Delta? Yeah. But this is the first time that Doctor Who treads on directly on the Second World War as a historical period, isn't it? I don't think there's anything else that... I think it is, yeah. And yeah. Um, and you think, OK, you know, shocking though it is, it was, <laughs> it was a heck of a lot closer to... It was much more recent history at the time than it is now... And, mm. it, and it's very, it's very interesting because it just doesn't take, 
the whole construction of it, it doesn't take any, you know, it doesn't take a lot of the the choices that you'd necessarily expect. It doesn't go down a cliche, you know, it's a story about the Second World War and the but we don't get the Germans are the Germans are no. non are non non participants in this. And the closest we get is all the so you know, somewhat questionable, you know, Millington's Millington's yeah. little obsessions. And yeah. um you know, and the other thing that was interesting I had to check because I mean, this is nineteen eighty, yeah, eighty nine, isn't it? Yeah. And you think, you know, I, I don't think I actually really registered this, but could, because Bletchley Park has become such a mm. such a mm. such a part of our now shared national story. But the first time I really became massively aware of it was when Channel Four did their Station X documentary about it, where they got a lot of people as talking heads who mm. spoke about it for the first time, and that was only in. Um, Ninety-nine, right. And the whole thing was, you know, the whole thing was classified until, you know, completely classified until the mid seventies, mm-hmm. when the first book about it was written, much to the chagrin of all the, of all the people who'd actually worked there, and <laughs> and had kept their mouths shut under the official secret act yes. because that's what they understood was the agreement, and um, and then some, some guy who occasionally visited from elsewhere, as I understood, went and blew the lid off it but it was um, some it wasn't part of the current currency at the time indeed yeah my my grandfather was one of those who he he didn't work there full-time he was he worked for the admiralty but he he certainly was at Bletchley Mm. more than once and he did he did speak to my mother about it eventually Mm. but but very close to the end of his life and he still wasn't giving very much away Mm. because in his head he'd he'd agreed he never would say anything and he Mm, wasn't going to start yeah but uh, but yeah, it, it's it, so it is an it, it, yeah it's, it's, it is a fascinating piece of history that's come out very slowly, mm. and in, but, but 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 you know increasingly I suppose over time. So as you say, it may, it's the first time Doctor Who does the Second World War, but <clears throat> it's nothing like a, a traditional Doctor Who does does wartime story unless you look at it very superficially, is it? Mm-hmm. Because. That's just not what this era was about. I don't think Andrew Cartman would have would have gone with it if anyone had suggested it. Yeah, mm. well, I I made a note. I said, "Well, it's it's it gets a bit." You you, <laughs> I made a note that you kind of wonder whether the BBC would have the nerve to put it out today, in some ways. Mm. And again, this is the period of. Is this around the same time as the Monocle Mutineer? And oh, possibly probably, bef- possibly yeah. predates it, but but you wonder. You know, it's it is quite you know. Agit prop in in places, <laughs> isn't it? It's it's got its it's got its opinions, and you you think okay, it doesn't quite go with the you know, especially in the depiction of Millington and stuff. It doesn't really go with the mm. the national mythology that has been built up through endless repeats of Dad's Bloody Army. Um, you know, mm. Which <laughs> which isn't to say anything against Dad's Army. I love the show for itself, but the but the mythologizing has gone along with it. Is um, you know. And considering it was yeah. so much closer to the time, yeah. So, so you've got you've got that one Corinthians thirteen quote that um, uh, that Nicholas Parsons mm. is saying halfway through mm. about faith, hope, and love. And mm. I suppose, I mean, certainly faith is is discussed a lot. Mm-hmm. There's um, far too much repetition in that speech of his. You know, something really should have buzzed in. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Sorry, I spoiled what was going to be a very profound observation. Carry on. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, faith in it is is interesting, isn't it? I mean, the so the so the Russian is ultimately has more faith in the revolution than than the vicar has in Christianity. Mm. And, and I guess you could say, well, that's interesting because Stalin has already had his purges in Russia. So the, I mean, there's, there's certainly reasons for the Russians not to be entirely. Mm. Indeed, it it's it doesn't bear too close scrutiny, does it? But yeah, it's possible it to have its cake and eat it. That it's yeah, it's, it's also the story. Mm. It's also the story where they uh, completely break the rules of chess so they can have <laughs> a ham, rather ham-fisted metaphor of the pawns working, the pawns together. working together. But you, yeah. I think you really just have to not be too picky about the details and think yeah, about yeah. the mm. spirit of what Mister Briggs, who's you know a very kindly man if naive, was was trying to was mm. trying to say. But then I, don't think he's, I don't think he's naive. Mm. That, was, that was me being silly. <laughs> that would be very pretentious of me if I'd meant that seriously. I didn't. <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, so Parsons is fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. Throughout. It's, a, it's a brilliant performance. And, yeah, in that, in that case, obviously, the sting in the tail is quite, you know, is, is why, the, you know, why the loss of face. And, again, it is something that doesn't, you know, it's, it's based on, not on the German actions and so on. It's the, you know, it's mm. the... It's the British yeah. actions, and we get we do get references to. Do we get a direct reference to Dresden? And I, I think it is certainly implied. implied. The bombs yes. started falling. Yeah. British bombs on killing British mm. children, <laughs> Giles. Yes, but I, I do remember having uh, one or two Christian friends at the time who um, who somehow managed to read this as an anti-Christian piece in total, which I think is mm. being a bit oversensitive. I don't know. I don't really no, see. I, I think I, I don't think it's that. No, it's it's mm. like a perfectly valid character beat for Reverend Parsons, don't mm. you? Yeah. To have these doubts. Mm. I believe um, he was supposed to be a much younger character, wasn't he, which um, Ian Briggs thought would better mm. personify the, the doubts of the man who's not living up to his, mm. father, his father's Yeah, because his father and, grand, and grandfather have been, have been vicar here before. Yes. I mean, with the possible exception of Beryl Reed, I think it's possibly JNT's finest stunt casting, because you, you're just not mm. expecting Nicholas Parsons. Well, I mean, I mean, I, mean, I guess, I guess it's either him or Halen Pace. Re- I think <laughs> re- retrospectively, of course, you know, yeah, when you when you get into films, you can you can understand that that mm. Nicholas Parsons was an actor at some point, but but uh, as a you know, as, as somebody in the '80s who's watched *Sailor of the Century* and, and listened to *Just a Minute* now and then, <laughs> the, the idea that Nicholas Parsons is an, is an actor you know, would mm. have been quite surprising. Yeah, I, I have to keep. Re- I'm constantly having these moments watching old television, and of course, you just have to remember that most people were actors, weren't they, before they turned yes. into some other career? Mm, I was watching yes. an episode of *Red Cap* last night, and John Noakes was in it. Oh, good yeah. lord! Very, Gosh, very distracting. Mm. Mm. But I thought, well, you know, if um, yeah. Well, good if for Peter space astronaut Stephen Taylor can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John Noakes can yeah. turn up with a dodgy Welsh accent in red. <laughs> <laughs> so next to Lovejoy, Billy Walker from Coronation Street, mm. and Rand and the bloke at Randall and Hopkirk. Okay, it's quite an episode for Star Spotting. Yeah. Did he have Did he have a big um, artistic range? Did uh, John Noakes? Well, I'm gonna have to look at more of his work now. Aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can say, yeah, he definitely can perform away from Shep. I can, I can. <laughs> a lot of people over the years have said that Shep was carrying him, but um, <laughs> it's, it's just malicious gossip. 
yeah. But just just on that stunt casting thing, I mean, obviously that is yeah with the the Bella V comparison, it's just you know it's. I know it's said with tongue in cheek, but I know I'm quite a fan of Bella V casting yeah, yeah, casting in Earth Shop. But it, it works. You know, they both work, and they they work actually for they they actually work for almost almost opposite reasons. That Bella Bella mm. works because ironically she's the she's the one who is known at least to some extent more as a straight actor than you know yes i know she she'd done sitcom and stuff like that but but yeah. you know she'd also done kidding only, sister george and so on and she had something it's only the generation who knew her from mooncast and co that complained isn't it yes I mean, anybody yeah. a bit older than that wouldn't have um and yet and yet she comes in and because she's you know and she she you know she thank god is you know is son is helps helps to undermine Saywood's overly macho tone yeah. in that, whereas Parsons comes in and we know him as the you know the the light entertainment lovey, and uh, yeah, and comes in and, and delivers a storming performance there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very mm. very naturalistic, very believable. Mm. Mm. Um, and Hale and Pace prat about in a pet shop. Mm. There is that. There is that. So, I mean, the kids get very excited or got very excited uh, earlier this year about Orphan 55 and, and the, um, you know, the, the the whole end of the earth and, you know, we, we must look after the planet. And then mm. we discover that uh, Ian Briggs has, has beaten them to it um, in this one with the, with the haemovores. Mm. Absolutely. And the chemical slime or whatever. I Yes, I would say this is a good example of how to do that. I mean... You couldn't really their poles apart. I think we <laughs> we tore off from fifty five a new one at the time, didn't we? Yeah, the yeah. way not to do it is to just do it in exposition at the at the end of a story. Mm. Um, I mean, sh- short of seeing that future, I wouldn't mind a sequel to Fenric, but I guess that's kind of missing the point because uh, it's a threat that is out of sight. You're seeing the mm. the consequences somehow travelling back through time, aren't you? Mm. But um, well, I was going to get onto that. Yeah. But it's uh, interesting he manages to get an environmental message in there as well, along with everything else that's going on. Yeah, you just can't believe how much he, yeah, he's, how much he throws at it, really. Um, <laughs> and it shouldn't work. I am no. always complaining on these episodes. Maybe I will later about <laughs> too many disparate ideas being crowbarred in, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, throwing them at the wall like bits of spaghetti to see if they're ready, and they and they just half the time slither back down onto the kitchen floor mm. because they're they're half baked i don't know what metaphor i was going for there <laughs> but no really this this all maybe it's because it moves at such a lit click mm. but i i do think it all ties up very nicely yeah that's if we've understood it which yeah <laughs> i've got a sneaky feeling there may be a few questions so so, so let's well let's try and get into that so so there's a there's creatures from the end of time yes that come back to the ninth century presume this is this is because Fenric has, has caused yeah. some it can do ripples that. in time mm, or something like it's that experience in, in time storms time storm in the same way yes. that ace gets transported to um, the ice world yeah mm. and then so but but then somehow Fenric ends up in a bottle mm. which the ancient one follows uh it changes hands there's some vikings they get washed up in north yorkshire mm. and settle there 
and then what the the ancient one is turning successive generations into hemovores to create this army of hemovores in the end is that's what is that what's happening something like that i think you two are going to have to help it because I only had time to watch the rewatch the first half, and mm. I was um, enjoying it so much. I was and also had so many questions. I was looking forward. It's definitely implicit in the bit where they the some of the hemovores emerge from behind with the, with the gravestone of the Sunvig. Yes, um, family that it's, this is them. How many of them come back in time? Is it only the ancient one? It's only it's back? only it's only yes. explicitly the ancient one, and and I think Fenwick has a line in episode four about. About he wasn't expecting so many of them, or uh, words to that effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah he said I was only expecting one. So presumably, his, my world is dead. Yeah, bit, doesn't he? So presumably he brings back, he brings back the the ancient one at some points, you know, from within, you know, somehow or other he has the power within his bottle, or it's all pre predestined, because you know he's he's been locked up before. Beforehand, whenever, whenever, right. whenever the doctor put yes. him, put him in the yes. bottle, and yeah, yeah. in and, prehistory, and, this is the doctor yeah. has put him in the bottle. Yeah, yeah, and Fen- and the ancient one has then followed him from second century Byzantium or wherever. Not, mm. not second century because it didn't ex- exist then. But anyway, from the um, bloody hell, Giles, from that kind of period, <laughs> <laughs> um, has followed followed the. The Viking raiders, which is quite logical because they did go down through, um, they did go down through Russia, through the, mm-hmm. through the rivers to to raid the Byzantine Empire. They weren't just hanging around on on the, on the northwest coast, but uh, or northeast coast even. Mm. Yeah, and then then the curse. Yeah, I don't. I yeah, no. This is where I'm going to say, help me out. But <laughs> okay, I'm going to use. I'm going to turn the fact that I um. Didn't manage to watch the whole thing to my advantage, and I can uh, pretend I did deliberately so that I could ask you two questions. Because as we've already established, the none of them came back from the f- the only the ancient one came back from the future, mm. and it's created this army over the centuries, which is why they're all dressed in yeah period costume. Mm. I just got something at the time made me think that that wasn't in the script that they weren't supposed to all be looking like they were from different eras of Earth's history and. And that was just something the costume designer had conjured up, which then gave a different slant to the script which Ian Briggs hadn't intended. But mm. I guess he must have intended that, if it's ex- explicit that they're they are all all yeah. these creatures are are people that that the ancient ones have been gathering around him over the last two centuries. Mm. So, so to be honest, I, I I think the only it's only on this latest viewing that I've that, that I've worked out that it was only the ancient one that's come back, which is kind of ironic isn't it because he's actually from the future hmm. but anyway but he's ancient because he's lived through <laughs> centuries on earth yes uh, uh, whereas whereas the the others um have been turned into hemovores during the, uh, the the course of that time hmm. but yeah yeah he's, he's sort of creating an army one by one as, as uh, uh, because somehow a, a hemovore can create other hemovores hmm. which we see of course during the course of the story because that's what happens to the two girls hmm. Well, I still think that I remember reading that the design, the choice to make these the Hindus look individual, and to give them different period costumes. While it may be in sympathy with what the script was intending, I think I don't think it was in the script. I think it just came about hmm. during production. Yeah, yeah. So, 
So that was a very nice touch. It would be lacking something if you couldn't, if it, I mean, it you know, visualises. Yes, definitely. The point the story's trying to make. Mm-hmm. I think they're rather uncanny. I think they were competing camps over who's going to get to design the hemophores. Mm. And it was a design that just made them look like aliens. They all looked the same. They had a big a face with a big sort of sucker-like mouth and teeth in it, mm-hmm. which was quite a nice design for an alien vampire. Okay. Mm. And, um, and then, of course, they went with something completely different, which is the suggestion that these are all mutated... Mm. Corpses or the corpses walking dead, the like, walking dead, like yeah. zombies. Zombies was the word I was mm. looking for. Yeah. Are they the only Doctor Who monster where every single one has looked slightly different? Well, you could say the Ice Warriors, but, the, but I think, I think they, they've got two different moulds for that rather than <laughs> um, half a dozen or whatever, yeah. No, there's something very un, un, unnerving about these, the way they become more and more blobby and... Less, less recognisable as a human mm. face. The older they get, yeah. That's um. I don't really what decided I was going to be scared of them before I even saw it because there were some leaked, I think, picked production pictures in Starburst or somewhere, which gave me a small nightmare, which was a bit unusual because mm. I was sixteen. Okay. <laughs> so, I've got this scary version of Hemovores in my head from mm. that from that nightmare. Which um, luckily I'm able to draw upon mm-hmm. for extra reserv- reserves of fear whenever I watch Curse of Fenric. Mm-hmm. It's. Um, I was going to say the other thing that struck me watching it this time, and again just thinking about the, you know, about thing- things that we take for granted now. This is very, you know, what we, <laughs> what we n- would now refer to as game esque Fenric. Fenric. It's very the whole the whole thing is very. Very Sandman, Neil Gaiman type of. It's just this kind of sli- slightly fairy story, you know, villain mm. origin, and and so on. And I was just looking up, and and Sandman didn't start until 1989. And but the other thing that did strike me that it vaguely reminded me of was the um, was the Voyager comic strip from, you know, uh, Sixth Doctor era, D- mm. DWM, the whole. Yeah, just just some of this some of this mythological semi mythological stuff. Yeah, you know, that's in the backstory. Well, they were all being inspired by comics, weren't they? Or at least Andrew Cartman was, and he was mm. trying to encourage his other yeah. writers, writers to read comics. Well, this is the thing. The, I, the, I, the, mm. the fact that Briggs has borrowed more directly from Norse mythology, I suppose, is a clue mm. to the fact that he probably wasn't a big comic man. He, mm. Can you tell us any more about the relationship this story bears to Fenrir and Fenris and? And the wolves from Norse mythology, because it's a, it's a slightly garbled version that we get here, isn't it? Uh, you you're, can't. You're looking at me as if I'm. <laughs> I'm oh, I thought you knew everything. No, no, no. <laughs> I wish I was a Norse mythology expert, but um, mm. but um, but yeah. So I mean, it's uh, the thing that I picked up on it actually was um, was again just Millington's kind of garbling and so on. It's actually. It's more interesting, almost, as it picks up on the fact that obviously the Nazis were very in- mm. into this, yes. and again, it's kind of part of that kind of read across that there was kind of something in the air with all of that stuff in the nineteen forties that they were they were you know obsessing about this. All this all this missing is some you know some Tibetan hidden rulers of the world living under living in passages under underneath <laughs> everywhere. But that I, that would probably have been too much, you know. I believe the original working title was The Wolves of Fenric, mm, yes. and that would have been a more explicit reference to the original 
Norse yeah. mythology. Mm. Fenris Wolf is the um, is. Yes. Is the, he, he made a guest appearance in Thor Ragnarok. You may have seen that. Yes. Even yeah, I think it's his. I know you too. haven't read any yet. Any yet. <laughs> <laughs> mythology, but you, you have seen some Marvel mm. films, haven't you? Yes. Oh yeah. He's he's not as clever as he pretends to be, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I've read a bit. I was, I was convinced at the time that the um the whole the whole Carmel master plan was that um was that the Doctor was going to turn out to be Heimdall, but um. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Back in the um. Well, it's I mean it's the second appearance of 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 Norse mythology within two seasons, isn't it? After the greatest show in the galaxy. Oh, of course, yes, yeah, Ragnarok and so on. And, um, it is. They are kind of throwing it all around. Hmm. And then seeing what sticks and trying to tie it together retrospectively. And mm. they don't actually try to tie in Ragnarok here, do they? But they do They do clear up... Well, I don't know, really. Uh, is it a hanging thread? How Ace got to Weisswell? I don't think anybody was particularly worried about it. We were just trying to ignore the fact that she yeah. said she, she created a time storm with, with a mm. chemistry experiment. Who yeah, no, yeah. I very much doubt that anything like that was in the back mm. of Ian Briggs's mind because he has he was on record at the time as saying that Dragon Ball was a comedy. Mm. And uh, when he was mm. publicising Curse of Femrick, he said, oh, this, is, this isn't the same thing at all. Mm. This is mm. going to scare the kids, and it did. Yeah. yeah. Particularly me. <laughs> I wish I had not admitted thing. that it's, now. It's very, <laughs> um, it's very unexpected for Briggs to have yeah, it's not. It's not, and you know, Dragon Dragonfire has its plus points, but it's you know, it's quite broad brush, and it's 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 not really all that much more than, you know, than a a bit of an elevated cribbing of a bunch of popular sci-fi movies of the, of the of the time, and this is definitely on a different level. There's a homage to Dragonfire when uh, the Seventh Doctor starts throwing himself through the church window towards the Hemovores. Um, you know, <laughs> yes, he, he appears to have already escaped, mm. and then uh, goes back in for a bit more. Yeah, and I can't quite work out the the logic of um, Ace going up the tower in no. order to come down well, the tower, and so then she can come back. down again yes. and go back up again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she had a plan before she was interrupted by the hemovores yeah, on yeah. the roof. Um, uh, the, the the super special edition will explain it all. Mm. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing I was going to say about this. And before tiny little bits and pieces, but it's it. This seems to be one of the few classic stories that really bothers with, like just subtext and rhyming, and that kind of thing in there. I mean, the fact you have, you know, you have that moment in, I think it, yes, it is in episode four, isn't it? But uh, Millington and the and the stuff about the fire and having to seal seal people in. No, it's it is a it is episode yes. three because you get the soldiers. He he orders the door to be blockaded so the soldiers who are helping Ace and the Doctor get out are, um, are, are mm. stuck stuck in there with the hemovores. Then he comes out with the story about having having locked people yes. in when the when there was a fire on board ship, and then Kathleen Ace's Ace's granny, yes. you know, gets the telegram that's that basically yeah. you know sounds like her husband has died in similar circumstances. It's just you know that kind of nice touch that it doesn't mean it doesn't mean everything is connected, but it's just you know it just comes back to these rhymes and and you know like just nice little moments that add a, add a bit more texture. Hmm. One thing I like about it is that it um, it has an epic quality without being told on an epic scale hmm. itself. There's so much backstory in hmm. the best way. It it seems to span it's 
spans through time, thousands of years into the past and into mm. the far future. We have um, the idea of this curse going down through the generations. Um, the sort of Quatermassy idea that the the people who live in this area are all mm. are all doomed. Mm. Yes, it's it's nice. It's a bit it's a bit like the um it's a bit like the time war in the in the new series in 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 terms of how it was introduced at least in that you've got this you know there's this marvelous canvas of stuff that you know we're not familiar with and we're kind of seeing seeing the repercussions. And okay, we we kind of get the end. Yeah, we we kind of we get to see the end game of it all. But but yeah, we haven't seen. Yeah, but it just lays out a lot of stuff in in quite subtle strokes in the same way as you know, RTD was wont to do with his little name drops of various battles and incidents in the Time War. Yeah, I mean the entirety of what we need is here. It it do, we don't really need it to be linked to Dragonfire or to the mm. chess. Oh, the chess set and Lady Pinkford study. We don't really, no. we don't need that. Mm. But somehow, having told us, when the Doctor tells us that he's been fighting Fenric all mm. through time, it's the culmination of this epic struggle. With what we've seen in this story, it's even the cut-down version. It still feels mm. like an epic in a way that it doesn't at the end of the Greatest Show of the Galaxy when he says he's fought the gods of Ragnarok mm. all through time. Mm. I remember. I remember doing a double take the first time I heard that line mm. have you <laughs> what are you talking about so there are you can do it right and you can do it wrong and as much as I love The Greatest Show in the Galaxy I feel that attempt to give it a a weight a, and again a, a, an epic scale and a, and a significance of the Doctor it just mm. didn't need that it was a perfectly mm. good story in its own right whereas Curse yes. of Fenric I think would have told a great story in itself just with these characters mm these locations and this mood but when you give it that epic camp when you tell that small mm. story on such a vast canvas which we can almost see because we had all the details sketched in for us that just elevates it to another level yes yeah i mean I, can I you do. tell can you tell <laughs> that i like it yeah yeah i mean i do like the greatest show in the galaxy although uh, in oh, that, so I, do I. I, I probably haven't watched it in about 30 years but I agree with you that that last those last sort of five or ten minutes do feel a bit tacked on in the way that this feels less mm. like that. Mm. Yeah. This um, is is the only uh, Doctor Who story set in Yorkshire at the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> although, although, uh, didn't know although when we were not, well um, not explicitly stated, uh, it mentions Northumbria, which yeah. is um, as far as we as we get as a, a nod, but. Um, but yeah, as far we, we we do find out from um, Ian Briggs that he intended, mm. intended to set it in North Yorkshire, somewhere near Whitby. I have to squint to remind myself that it's supposed to be there because, of course, I've well, so of course, well, I mean, well, I've been it, to Lulworth Cove, and anyone who yes. has will have immense trouble not picturing mm. it all taking exactly. place on the south coast. I mean, it, it looks exactly like Dorset. Mm. I agree. <laughs> it's nice than Northumbria. So um, horses mm -hmm. for courses, swings and roundabouts. They could they could never have actually gone to Yorkshire to film it because they'd got a nosebleed going that far <laughs> north. <laughs> and the cast are yeah marvelous throughout. We've already talked about Nicholas uh, Nick, Nicholas yeah. Parsons, but at least the leading ones. And there's a few there's a few dodgy performances around the side, but uh, amongst possibly some of the English soldiers. And although I pity the poor guy that's on the end of Ace's chat up line, you can't really do much with you can't really do much <laughs> with that, can you? <laughs> But some <laughs> no. Anne Reed is fantastic, and um, she's yeah. 
in uh, horrendously underused, mm. really. Yeah, yeah. But but on the other hand, when you have a small part that needs mm. to make an impact, I'd much rather you get somebody who's overqualified for the mm. part than than have it yes, fall flat. Yeah, but she mm. does. Yeah, she absolutely. You know, her and um, her and Judson bounce off each other brilliantly, and um, I love the I love the I'm not an invalid, I'm a cripple line. <laughs> it's just. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone know Dinsel Lennon from anything else? Because I, I'm going to be perfectly honest and say I don't. And I remember, I believe he's best known, he was better known for comedy at the time. He uh, certainly looks so he some, looks familiar, but I can't think of specifically. I'm where trying I've seen to. You've him. got you've got me hmm. doing the necessary and you know, and, and hitting IMDb here, trying to <laughs> trying to find because I know I knew him in. I, I know I did know him yeah. from other stuff beforehand. The, do you know the Independent once called him an outstanding actor with the qualities of a true farceur? Mm. He was a farcer, so I think that okay. answers my question. Mm. Well, mm, interesting. He's very good, and Alfred Lynch is mm. very good, and her off Grange Hill is good, and <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and Tom, I went to is great as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, no, they. Yeah, I think the cast is underrated. There's barely a weak link, and it's au mm. contraire. Oh good lord! Do you know oh. what I probably knew him from at the time? Morons from Morons from Outer no. Space. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say no. that. Does he display the qualities of a true farceur? <laughs> I think he does. He plays a stuff. He plays a stuffed shirt of some sort, stuffed shirt military officer. And uh, I can't. I can't remember. I mean, that's a. <laughs> uh, yes. There you go. I went to a rather good minute one day Doctor Who convention in the late nineties. Oh, yeah. uh, in the village in which this was filmed yeah. in Kent, Hawkehurst, where quite a lot of the cast turned okay. up, uh, and Joan mm. T, Gary Downey, um, they parked their car next to me as we both arrived at yeah. the same time. I mm. think he was following me most. Oh, I didn't know they filmed in Hawkehurst. Lovely village. N- it's all true. We we got a trip up to the top of the um, we, special dispensation to go up to the yes. church roof. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And why am I telling you this? I think there was going to be a point to the anecdote. We, as well as lots of genuine actors from the Curse of Fenbrook, the, uh, the Dad's Army Appreciation Society turned up en masse in their soldier uniforms to add a bit of colour. Excellent. Which, um, okay. There you go. So you can picture it now, can't you? Is that the final detail you needed? To I, I, I thought the point of the anecdote was, was the name-dropping, which was spectacular. <laughs> Oh well, I, no. I tell you what. No, well, Paul, Paul's yeah. Never known I one, of my, <laughs> one of my one of my most gauche moments was on that day, and as you you've met me, so you know this is saying something. And when when I got out of the car and uh, turned to the car next to me, which had been following me down the country lanes, and J and T got out, mm. I just sort of went, "Oh, hello!" In that way that I always do when I meet somebody who mm. I know, just c- completely regardless of whether they would know me. <laughs> mm. Great days. And um, and the other thing about that day was that it was the day of Princess... I don't know why I'm laughing. It was the day of Princess Diana's yeah. funeral. Really? So most of the guests mm. came anyway. But right. I think I think one or two, um, out of respect, or perhaps because they were looking for an excuse, uh, chose not to and stayed mm. at home watching a funeral on the telly. And mm. so to this day, I've never seen Princess Diana's funeral. Have I missed out? No. no. Excellent. <laughs> Let's move on. I think you got the better deal that day. But, um, oh, yeah. but yes, no, I, I did something very similar in terms of going, oh, hello, to um, architectural historian Dan Cruikshank a few years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <It> was, 
<laughs> and then I turned around and realised he was actually doing a walk down the street talking walk to, walk down the street talking to camera piece. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a little bit embarrassing. You're on a bloopers. You're on a blooper reel somewhere. I probably am. Oh. Yeah. Fantastic. I'd forgotten about him. I used to like him. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Shall we talk about vampires a bit? Because that is the linking mm. theme. So, as what? you said at the beginning, Ricardo, these are not quite vampires. Yeah. Yeah, explicitly and, in mm. the plot. Go on. No, you 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 take over. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think I think when when Simon suggested the theme, he said, "Ah, oh, these th- there's vampires in both of these," and and then it turns out mm. that there aren't. There are no vampires. And in then it turns out to be no, si- <laughs> no Simon <laughs> in the episode <laughs> either. <laughs> no, no, but but they but they are, I suppose they have some of the same similarities. So there's certainly blood mm. um, involved. Uh, the hemovores um, remove the blood. Yep. I feel like not quite vampires, fake vampires, is one of the most common twist monsters that we get in Doctor Who. And but I can't. I can't I'm just want to hear how many examples there are. I mean, there are plasmavores mm. as well, and the yeah. name is a bit of a giveaway. That um, yeah. I just I don't know if does it happen elsewhere in science fiction that the writer wants to have their cake and eat it. They want to have all the trappings of a vampire mm. story, but for some reason they don't have vampires. For whatever reason, because this is science fiction, and not, fa- and vampires mm. are fantasy. So, so it feels I, I may have more to say on that topic yeah. when we get to our our second story. Star, Star, Star Trek, Star Trek must do that somewhere. Yeah, you've got Anne Reed in that um, mm. tenant well, thing that we that we, that we looked yeah. at. Mm. You know, she's I, there where she starts sucking blood out of people. Uh, yeah, that's a playful that's a playful RTD at, um, equivalent where she uses a straw mm. to suck people's yeah, blood yeah. out, which is whereas here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the vampiric aspect of the hemovores is particularly important. Well, so do you think it? Do you think it is supposed to be just riffing on the atmosphere? I'm going to be controversial here, possibly, because I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just going to say this strikes me as much more really what vampires. And I, I, I wonder whether at the time, you know, whether Briggs had written, read some of the, had read some of the same kind of stuff that I had about. About you know the sort of middle European origin myths and so on, and Porphyria, you know I think it was Porphyria supposedly connected with it and and all of this stuff to do with these bloated you know bloated corpses and not looking nothing that you know everything looking nothing like Christopher Lee at all, but the idea mm. of these shambling shambling creatures you know it, it strikes me as much more much more faithful to the original kind of vampire mythology than than any sort of, you mm. know, Bram Stoker gothic romance type of thing. Interesting. I mean, it's certainly the, the sort of Whitby-esque mm. location suggests yes. that, it, that it was in his I th- head. I think that's the mm. biggest clue, isn't it? Yes, and you get a throwaway, throwaway line to that effect as well, don't you? Yeah. But, it, but there does seem to be a bit of cakeism in it mm. as well, in that he, he sort of diverts mm. away from it at the same time, so I, I'm not fully sure. Again, I don't think it leaves you feeling unsatisfied like as a hanging mm. thread somewhere. It mm. doesn't lead you on a vampire path and then pull the rug out from under your feet, either deliberately or or through careless writing. It's just, uh, as I said, there are so many currents mm. in this cake. Uh, it's a particularly nice big vampire plum. <laughs> but it's ju- it is still just one mm. of many ele- elements. And if they weren't called mm. haemovores, I don't know if we'd even be discussing it today because the um mm. it was seem like a rather more mm. subtle strand yeah mm. but i mean mixing up vampires and north mytholo- norse mythology and 
and Nas, the Nazi menace. It shouldn't work. Mm. I'm here to tell you that it shouldn't <laughs> work, mm. and I'm delighted mm. that it does. It's just, yeah, mm. it's it's a bit of a bit of a lightning and, in the bottle and the thing. Red peril. Yes, yeah. If you hadn't written one dot two already, it feels like one of those cases where. Someone's going. Oh my god! I've got the chance to write Doctor Who. I'm going to throw every, I'm going to throw every Doctor Who idea I've ever had at this one script. Yeah. And all too often, as you say, that turns out that turns out to be a mess. But in this case, it it works remarkably well. My my only other two notes here are that Perkins certainly takes his orders about very seriously when it comes to destroy. It's a pretty radio <laughs> action. <laughs> yeah, true. And um and I and I particularly love in terms of the. In terms of the brisk pacing and so on, and especially considering what we... I mean, we get a nice gag in the story we're about to talk to, you know, a nice psychic paper gag. Mm. But, on the other hand, mm. the way it's handled here, with the... You know, the <laughs> it's just absolutely <laughs> just yeah. you know, brilliant. It takes it doesn't take any more time than the psychic paper gag would. And it gets you right into the yeah. heart of the story. And yep. It's just a brilliantly, you know, doctorish moment, really. Mm. And th- and thank goodness we've moved on from the days when we would have had endless explanations of who you are, locking up, getting locked yeah. up, and escaping, and all that padding. There is no padding in this, to say the I was least. Say, as as like, we had with invasion of the dinosaurs last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. It it gets just that right balance between you know that that skipping of you know okay, we'll put the, we'll put the characters where they need to be from moment to moment, but we don't need to show them having the discussion that leads to them going there or arriving or anything like that. And yeah, so you get it to clip along at a really good pace. Yeah, I mean, my only last comment is I like the gag about the grenade and the explosives. So, you know, there's the, there's mm. the poison gas grenade and then there's the explosive under the table and there's a, there's a lovely die for cover as well as the uh, special effects boys do their best with a big explosion mm. behind them. <laughs> Which um, was probably quite yes. lethal. Charles, you're you're an expert in World War Two, aren't you? But that's another element. That's another element, a bit like um, the Enigma Machine not being quite the Enigma Machine, but it's riffing on the certain incidents in the war where we didn't pass on information we could yes. have done. Isn't that again part of the Enigma tale that we 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 uncovered certain. Plans, it's uh, yeah, yeah. Certain, certainly which we then didn't act upon because it would have given yeah, away. Yeah, certainly with yeah. they they were running around trying to you know they would occasionally try and source stuff that had to be you know I think it's somewhat venturing into the territory of a myth about whether they whether they really didn't you know whether they really, yeah. whether Churchill really let certain things go ahead that that he could have stopped. Um, I think Churchill is hanging over this despite the fact mm. they don't mention him. The, the Millington's plans for what to do after the war and how we're going to have to mm. move on to the Russians, who is also yeah. mirrors Churchill's mm. yes. thinking. But as far as I'm aware, Churchill didn't um, dress up his war <laughs> office like no. Hitler's bunker. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they were certainly they were they were having to, as I as I recall, run around and try and find other you know and try and see the other ways in which they could have plausibly found out information that they wanted to act upon if you know what i mean in certain cases if they they, they would yeah. yeah they would ask people to look into stuff so they so there was a plausible other way in which the you know the the intelligence had been obtained hmm. are we done with this one now or uh, don't don't interrupt me when i'm utilizing 
<laughs> Been waiting to get I that think one we in. are. Yes. We, I don't know if we've done it justice, but we've done our best. Mm. We've given it our best yes. shot. Okay, so so the other story in in in, in our two today is Vampires of Venice from season five. Yeah, it's I think also a second uh, outing for in this case Toby mm. Whitehouse. Is that really? his second? Yeah. Interesting. I think so. I mean, prove me wrong, uh, but I, I think it is. And you know, we've we've generally had good things to say about Toby in the past. We've quite, quite uh, we've had good things to say, certainly about the God Complex when that came up. Mm. Oh uh, yes, I remember some months ago. So so this one, you know, also a story not quite about vampires. It's it's in that kind of mid mid part of the season where you've you know. You've You've had the the angel two parter in the sort of the early part of the of the establishing who Amy is and 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 you know her story with the doctor and then there's the end part of the season where we deal with the the crack and 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 uh, and so on and this sort of falls in that there's a couple of three stories that are standalone mm. in the middle and this is one of them um, and and there's there, there is a nod to the silence at some point point during it but it, it doesn't feel particularly important to the story hmm somebody else go before <laughs> me Richard do you want to well I mean what I can say about it is when I watched it the first time uh, and I'm going to say the, the thing that we always say in, in this podcast which is I don't think I've watched it since it originally went <laughs> out <laughs> I did. I wasn't that impressed with it really I, I uh, it was it was you know mid-season throwaway um I would say, looking at this now and thinking of, of the sort of stories that we've been getting in the last couple of seasons, I, I really love the sparkling dialogue we get at times in this. I think the the scenery is very good. I, I, I think it flows nicely. And, and to be honest, I I was very happy watching this for very nearly 50 minutes and it didn't really amount to very much, but I was okay with that. Sort of did what it had mm. to do, I thought. I saw, I agree and disagree. I know exactly what you mean about <laughs> the number of times we, we've gone back to... Did you mention the Idiot's Lantern there? Yeah. The, did <laughs> you say that? No, I didn't. Uh, no, that, I mean, that was the one where I think we all said, good, I never thought much of this at the time, but compared mm. to yeah. <laughs> last season, it's like the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think the novelty's worn off now, and I'm back to thinking. Now this isn't really any better than I remembered it being. Mm. Mm -hmm. For me, this is one of those archetypal new Who stories where uh, I don't know. I think the, the showrunner has come up with a, sl a slutty title, his words, not mine, and and palmed it over to a write to a writer who um, possibly wasn't particularly invested. Mm. in either vampires or venice <laughs> and thus decided that the only way to make it interesting for himself was to come up with a twist and the twist was either going to be that they aren't really vampires or that it isn't really venice um with the god complex he went mm. for the latter's twist um yes it's it's not a hotel it's um a nymon space thing mm. here it, it really is venice but they're not really vampires and to me I can understand why Toby did that, and I think he's a fantastic writer. I, but for me, with and he does the best every time. But his the stories where he's come up with an idea himself and is writing out something that means something to him are by far the 
are much better in, in Doctor Who and uh, approach the level of his work on being human. Here, the whole thing is constructed so that when we get to the reveal that these aren't really vampires and this is how, these things A, B, C and D that you thought were pointers to them being vampires, well, no, I can explain all of those. It's supposed to be clever and make you go, oh, ah, isn't that great? Or there's, no, there's a scientific explanation for why they mm. don't show up in mirrors. It's an explanation for the... And I just could not care less. And not, not, it actually undermines everything. It's not that I'm disappointed they're not vampires, but I just, that's what it's been building to. And I'm left completely cold by that. Now, is that a failing in me? It's not a type of story that I particularly enjoy. It feels more like um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> to me, where half the time the vampires aren't really vampires because they do vampires every week and occasionally they fancy a change so they do something that looks a bit like a vampire mm. but this week it isn't Giles, give us your thoughts um, I think I'm with, yeah, I'm with Paul possibly for slightly different reasons but yeah, now I've, I remember enjoying this I mean, at, the, at the time in season 5 and, yeah, and again, put me down as someone who probably hasn't watched this since transmission um, <laughs> but I remember in, within season five, I, I kind of I knew it was going to be filler, or I, I realised at the time it was filler. But I thought it was, I felt like it was superior filler to perhaps some of the some of those mid-season stories we'd had in the previous couple of years. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, it's good, it's packed packed with incident. It doesn't really let up, and it clips along at a good pace. And I, I remember sort of saying these things at the time. And mm. and now I kind of look at it, you know, rewatching it for this, um, with a slightly more jaundiced eye, you know, come on, get on, you know, get on with it, and so on. And part of what I wonder whether or not whether why I was more forgiving and slightly more intrigued by it at the time was obviously in, at the time we were in the middle of season five, which went series five, mm. which uh, had a took a somewhat different approach to this whole linking arc thing than RTD had over the previous because we just had the Angels two parter, which has had a fairly you know, which mm. has had a fairly major development and put what appeared to be the what appeared to be that season's bad wolf. It ended up being the had ended up being the Deus Ex Machina in order to you know, that resolve the the entire plot. And uh, mm. so this seemed to be going down a you know, really intriguing route. And at the time, I kind of I think uh, the fact that the whole stuff about the silence at the end, which, as you say, Richard, is is kind of a throwaway in in how much you know how much of it's there. I think possibly at the time I I interpreted or expected there to be more of that, and that more would come of that, and therefore it was you know it wasn't such a it's a it's a bit like how um I quite you know. I quite like the um the Lazarus experiment not so much for the you know, not so much for the um the main the A plot, but for the but for the rising yeah. B plot of of sa of like the Saxon Saxon stuff going <laughs> on in the background. And you know, and that lifts yeah. for that that lifts lifts it for me above above it being a standard mid season filler episode because there's something else interesting going on. And I think maybe I kind of expected at the time that the the whole thing about the silence over Venice and all of that was going to be, was going to relate to that. And as we know, you know, Moffat got to the end of the season, didn't resolve it, and then, and then, pretty obviously, went off down a completely different route 
when he decided what to resolve, what the silence actually was or were, when he got to season six, series six. How, mm. how dare you? <laughs> you mean he, he he changed it from a a plural mm. abstract noun into a uh, into mm. a no a singular. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I see. Season five has always reminded me of season one, even more so in hindsight. Uh, but at the time, the structure seemed very familiar. But um, considering how different it is from all of Moffat's subsequent seasons, I think it's more obvious that he was nervous about leaving Russell's mm. tried and tested formula. And it was just one little detail that reminds me um, the particular plot point that these. What are they called again? The fake vampires. Saturnine. The fish vampires. The f- oh, great. The fish vampires have escaped mm. through a portal, through a crack from yes. a dying world to Earth. It reminds me of um, yeah, what the nesting said at the yeah. end of Rose. I mean, h- here they're escaping from the season's big bad, which is mm. the crack. And um, there was quite a few references in season one to the things escaping mm. the time war. Mm. So it just thought I'd yeah. throw that in there. Oh, good point. Mm. Again, those, no, those, those little details feel a bit too shopping listy mm. to, to me I think they drag it down rather than elevating mm. it can I say something ni- yeah. some nice things about it I mean no you can't there's <laughs> <laughs> nothing particularly specific because it's written by Toby Whittes at least it is fun mm. and watchable and well constructed and the actors are all good the leads are fantastic Matt Smith is as does, every time I watch one of his stories I'm just astonished how good he is this must have been one of the. Um, do you think? He, do you think he, he's still growing in the part, or did he get it straight out of the out of the gate for you? Well, it's it's odd, I'd say, because you know the things that he recorded first, the um, the the angel two parter, yeah, and the scenes on the beach. He seems to be absolutely bang in there, and then some of the other stuff, sort of in episodes two or mm. three. You know the the Dalek one and the mm. uh, uh, and the whale one. You could you know, be it right feels, there. It feels like they were recorded later, but he's he seems less mm. certain in the role somehow. But maybe that's just because he, he the, the scripts aren't as good. He's spot on here, and that's probably because Toby knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing with characters, even if he can't help being a bit too tricksy when it comes to <laughs> vampires. Mm. And um, yeah, and. and Amy and Rory are great, but the again the one thing I didn't quite like is something that Toby's been landed with, which yeah. is um, again another callback to um, the Russell era when he's forced to disapprove of how much Amy and the Doctor enjoy themselves. And it is just like Where's Rose and, and the yeah. Tenth Doctor all mm. over again. Mm. When he's what does he say at the end of this? Oh, I can't remember. Oh, it's nicely worded the way he calls the doctor out, but it, and it's, it's in character. I'm not saying it's, it doesn't make sense, but I've seen it before, mm. and so I don't know why. Mm. I didn't enjoy it the first time around, when, <laughs> when Rose and the tenth doctor are being made to behave. Mm. They're not exactly out of character, but the, they're being pushed to absolute limits of what just how obnoxious you could mm. expect your heroes your lead characters to be and still yes, be it worth does, watching it does exaggerate and, uh, their, mm. here Amy and Eleven aren't anyone mm. here is annoying but they're being pushed a little bit so that mm. Rory can yes. then react and um, 
and again, it just doesn't really that ring bit true. where they meet up and go, "Ooh, vampires!" Kind of, yeah, yeah, exactly. I just not really, mm. I'm not really a fan mm. of all that. I'm just going to put my cards on the table. Mm. I liked the days when the Doctor and his companions. We knew, we understood that they enjoyed mm. their adventures. Mm. Most of them, Arfreen and Barbara and Susan, have left. Are there because uh, <laughs> either because they enjoy it or they learn to enjoy it. Mm. And we, I like the fact that that's sort of implicit, and they don't have to jump up and down mm. like five-year-olds constantly to tell us how much they're enjoying themselves. So mm. that's just a personal taste. I like that uh, Toby actually gives us. Chekhov's gunpowder. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a silly bit of dialogue that that appeals to my sense of humour, where the doctor says she kissed me, and Roy says, "And you kissed her back," and he says, "No, I kissed her mouth." <laughs> That's mm. terrific. Yeah. You. Well, you know, Toby is a uh, comedy mm. actor and writer, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> that sh- <laughs> that shouldn't work. <laughs> so bravo for going for it, everybody involved. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't like the bit where um, our main supporting character nobly sacrifices mm. himself, but it is not quite what I thought it was going to be. I thought he was unnecessarily running back into mm. danger just to say, just so that Amy the Doctor could get to safety. But he's not. He actually wants to destroy mm. the mm. the fish vampire yes, girls, yeah. doesn't he? Yes. Because. Mm. Which um, to avenge his daughter, so that that mm. makes a bit more sense. Mm. But you know, mm. still not a big fan mm. of those. No, he's great though. Lucy Mazzamati's. I was a bit shocked actually that uh, Isabella's just summarily dispatched halfway through it. I'd forgotten mm. that bit. It, you know, you, you, it doesn't it doesn't feel like that's that's it's that kind of story, and then suddenly it mm. is. Yeah, I feel like I think that's Toby. I think he is quite. Um, Quite a bloodthirsty, yeah. bloodthirsty when he one liners. Blood, look at. Remember, we discussed this on the God mm. Complex. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't entirely sure he needed to kill off every sympathetic mm. character in that, mm. just to make. Yeah. Just because he's in a bad mood <laughs> when he was he's, writing it. He's the anti Moffat, isn't he? Mm. There's. I'm, I'm only. Gonna, I've only got little little bits really to talk about now. I mean, you know, you've, you've got the um, the little bit at the end where. Rosanna, the, the the fish vampire woman, feeds her children by throwing herself in the mm. uh, yeah the canal. That's um yeah that's Chekhov's canal full of ravenous piranha fish mm. vampire people from yeah. another dimension. That's that's quite mm. nicely set up, I suppose. It's not too much of an anvil falling when they explain early on how they're they're hungry and be careful you don't <laughs> be careful actually. Having said that, doesn't somebody basically say, "Don't be careful, don't fall in there." <laughs> yes, they're, yeah, um, they're the starving. Is, um, yeah, 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 it's something about you know, be careful going too maybe, close when they're maybe it's not when you're not in, set up <laughs> when you've got your shielding up, as it were. Are, are they still there? Do you think, or, or, or maybe in the in the last five hundred mm. years, has it all gone away? Are they at each other? <laughs> um, well, yeah. Mm. Yes, that's a that's a good point. It looks nice, doesn't it? I was impressed this time more than I remember being the first time by how convincingly they suggest mm. Venice. Yes, I thought at the, t- at the time it was. Is it Croatia? It was filming. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah, no, it was better than I remembered. Mm. I actually quite like the Murray Gold music as well. Uh, often I'm going to moan about about the music 
being so loud that you can't hear what people are saying. But in this one, it seems mm. to work quite well. <laughs> I say, how old the word they're saying? <laughs> how old were you when you first started <laughs> thinking that? <laughs> um, oh gosh, I was already in my. Uh, 30, mm. I was probably nigh on 40 when I watched this, so yeah. Isn't it because a part of the year decays after mm. a certain time, a certain time of life and you just can't hear the right frequencies uh, it's anymore? certainly it's true, yeah. I don't know. And you know they turn it up for the adverts, don't they? <laughs> Have you ever noticed? <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen one of those debates on Facebook where somebody's complaining about how the adverts are louder or whatever, or this was mixed... Mm badly and then somebody technical comes on depends if you've got any bbc sound mm. technicians in your friend among your friends on facebook <laughs> or friends of friends mm. they come and explain explaining pedantic detail why no the adverts aren't louder but they just sound louder and then you think well if they <laughs> sound louder <laughs> call me a <laughs> call me old-fashioned but apparently there's a, t- there's a certain type of sound which um which it doesn't equate to volume uh, i've taken mm. this off course there haven't i you liked the music, Richard. It was smashing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> As, I mean, there there are there are lots of nice mm. lines in this. Actually, there's there's um, Amy says, "Blimey, this is private education." Then, uh, as she's walking through this vast domed um, mm. room, yeah, I like that. Oh, I didn't didn't like that line at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit less. I know. I like the bit <laughs> with the um, where the doctor runs into the vampire girls. And, uh, and just goes, tell me the whole plan. I mean, it's he's channel is Matt Smith is <laughs> Matt Smith channeling Mick Jagger. It's it's like one of those one of those moments I remember. You know, it's it's yeah. definitely kind of you see that that sort of eleventh Doctor kind of thing for that. You know, and the, it's still a good gag. I think. Tell me the whole plan. One day that will work. In terms of the specific representation of vampires here, is it owing something to um, is it Camilla and Lustra Vampire? All those late Hammer films with the which have a lot of, which are very heavy on the the young nubile mm. female vampire yes. trope. Then they're not particularly highly regarded. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. They have some recommended features. <laughs> I watched them all purely for research when I wanted to rip them off for Jago and Lightfoot. Right. Um, would you like me to plug the particular mm-hmm. story? And oh, go I on can then. read out it's... the ISBN number if, if people want to <laughs> want to order it. No, I won't. Yeah. Uh, well, I remember the the uh, Churchill College Film Society once pulled out the Vampire Lovers as a double bill with something. Vampire else. Lovers, mm. yes, that's somewhat. Twins uh, of I, Evil. I, I mean, it is. They, they they're uniformly mm. awful. I think. I mean, it's a bit half-hearted because they've they've gone down that road, but of course they can't actually. Mm. But I think the fact that it's um, is it is it lust for a vampire in particular, which is set in a girls' school. So I think that's probably the one. So we've got we've got the vampire, but not mm. the lust. Mm. I think it's fair to say. I mean, there's a snuff, there's a, a snuff, <laughs> a sniff of of, uh, of of Game of Thrones. You know, so sort of looking forward to that in terms of the, you know, the mummy's mm. boy and so on. I mean, it's it, it's it's a obviously clearly a, a thing throughout literature that um, George Martin ripped off. That there's no reason why um, Toby can't have a go mm. as well. I suppose. Yeah, well, they're both great, Hannah McCrory and Alex Price. It's it's quite it's quite a good one for spotting spotting future talent, as it were, because Alex Price Alex Price, of <laughs> course, has gone on to be uh, well, Sid in Sid in Father Brown. I, I was looking at him and thinking, "You look familiar," and then I realised that was who he was. And of course, he 
he was um Draco grown up Draco Malfoy in the um in the Harp, in the original Harp, oh, Prince production. And then lead vamp lead vamp girl, the blonde the, the blonde vamp girl is Gabriella Wilde, who uh, went on to be Lady Caroline in God knows how many series of Poldark. Oh, is she? Yes. Hmm. And again, I was thinking, you look familiar. Well, the one with the pug. The one, the, the yes. one with the pug who marries nice right. Dr. Dwight. Yes, that's a thankless mm. part, isn't it? Don't get me started <laughs> on Poldark, blimey. <laughs> I don't know how much she had, they had to write up her role from mm. what it is in the books in in the later series, but she just seems to f- pop up in the corner of every scene making a supposedly acid mm-hmm. comments on on what's going on around her uh, mm. while holding a pug. <laughs> That's a very, very precise mm. kind of acting. <laughs> pug acting, yeah. It's just... <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she was in Centrinians too. Uh, There's a bit electric, of a Electric Boogaloo. Bu- career. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm reminded of that thing about um, the thing from uh, Toast of London about the um, the renowned High Winds actor. I can't, I can't remember his name, but <laughs> the man who's very good at shouting, standing on strip stacks and shouting. So, if you, I don't know if it's time to draw this, try and tie a bow on all this, but we've got two different types of not quite vampires, but they're not quite vampires in completely different ways, aren't they? So I think we might have trouble drawing any real parallels between. Mm. Well, so I guess what you're saying is, Vampires of Venice is a, is a is a story with lots of vampire tropes that t- t- uh, turns out not to be about vampires. Whereas yes. uh, with Curse of Fenric is a story that does it doesn't appear to be obviously vampirish unless like Charles and, you, you, yeah. you know intimately the original vampire stories that it exactly represents and isn't. Uh, Yes, it doesn't mm. appear to be, <laughs> and isn't. Yes. <laughs> well, we've yeah. nailed that one. It's in um, in um, in Vampires of Venice. Am I right in thinking they are deliberately, they are almost deliberately disguising themselves as vampires, in order to? Well, no, I got the rather than impression it was a complete accident, mm. which I thought was one of the most one of the weakest parts of the but whole thing. Uh, when mm. when the doctor asks um, the Queen mm. Fish Woman. Why, you know, he has his list of why can't you see the mirrors? Why can we see your teeth? And she has mm. an, a scientific explanation mm. for it all. And none of it is deliberate. Oh, okay. None of it is because they mm. want to be to be hiding in the shadows, being seen as vampires. She, she just she plays it very. It's, mm. it's written as mm. well as you could hope, and she plays it very nicely because they have that nice flirtatious thing going on. And mm. it, removing the word flirtatious, their their relationship reminded me a bit of. The Tenth Doctor and Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer in School mm. Reunion. The, yeah, yeah. Toby does like having these face-offs, these yes. Um, yes. rather balletic face-offs mm. between the Doctor and his lead villain. Mm. His smirking, clever villains. Actually, there was a tiny bit of um, choreography uh, early on. I think it's when, whatever her name is, the, Isabella is first introduced. It's either Isabella or Amy. But our, our lead vampires circle around her in a rather theatrical way. Mm, yeah. And it reminded me of State of Decay, which famously, where famously it, Peter Moffat introduced... Vampires. Well, it is about vampires, and, um, and he introduced these, these movements to give it some... these completely unnatural 
theatrical mm -hmm. stagey movements just to um, give oh, it a bit of atmosphere. And that was Moffat. Moffat. Peter, uh, Peter yes. Moffat, not Stephen. <laughs> yeah, mm. and not that Peter Moffat, yeah. the other one. But no, I mean, he's, he's famous for it. The fact that they, you, you must have seen yes, it in State yeah. of Decay. I, the, 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 they're constantly circling mm. and, and swishing, moving in a very balletic mm. sort of fashion around. And it's just a brief moment. It doesn't really carry on, but it, it did make the... Uh, didn't make my ears prick up. My vampire senses started <laughs> tingling. But mm. it was short-lived. I think what I was thinking about is that there is a line from the Doctor or Amy about... I think it's probably from the Doctor about what's you know, what's so bad that it doesn't mind being seen as a vampire or something. Yeah, I, think. I, like, I like that. And yet, to so me... I think that, 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 was the, that was the line that made me think, oh, is it, is it a deliberate... I think... Hmm. I will see. Yeah, I think it's more that it doesn't mind being. Yeah. He's happy to. I, I mean, to me, that just sums it up. Really, he's he wants us to see that that he's suggesting it's something worse than a vampire, and of course, it isn't. It's just another boring CGI mm. monster, which in future nobody will be able to remember mm. their name or what they look like. And I hate to be <laughs> <laughs> such a Debbie Downer about yeah. it, but those, you know, it's mid-season. I'm not going to say filler. You can say that, Giles. You might think they're filler. I'm, I'm not going to say that yep. they are, but these mid-season oh, filler episodes yeah. are just full of um, <laughs> indifferently designed, pedantically named creature of the week, which um, are destined to fill some future iteration of the Doctor Who monster book by Johnny Morris. <laughs> <laughs> Has he managed to get out from under that gorilla now? <laughs> I guess the problem is that, isn't it? The problem is that after whatever it is, 38 series of Doctor Who or however many it adds up to, it is hard to come up with a new concept for an adversary. Hmm. And, and I suppose modelling your villain on something that we already know a bit about gives you, I suppose, you think, something that people can hold on to. But then cutting the ground away from you and saying, well, you think it's that, but it isn't. Hmm. It just mm -hmm. felt like a lot... Yeah. Well, there you go. It's happened... It's just perhaps happened too many times. Yes. And yet the irony is, uh, having his bites, that we have not had the return of the, of the vampires, as in the great vampire. Do you know Co. what? In the in I the was thinking series. that when I was watching... Vampires of Venice, not Curse of Femric, because I was perfectly happy with that achieving exactly what it set out to do. But thinking about the missed opportunity of Vampires of Venice and the comic Not Quite Vampires of... Um, oh, um, yes. Um, Judoon on the Moon. Judoon yeah, on the Moon, yes. I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice to have some real vampires? And, and then it, you know, it struck me like a bolt out of the blue that there's this vast untapped... It's just a bit of Holmesian backstory in, in State of Decay, isn't it, that... Hmm. It's not really. It's, it's not. Dixian. Yes, indeed. Dixian, it's Dick's Dick doing some Holmesian back, some Holmesian world building. Mm. I don't think it's really essential to the story mm. that the vampires are the ancient enemies, of the time lords. But for goodness, but there's no. yeah. Well, imagine the fun you could get out of that. Yes, and mm. with the time lords now out of the out of the equation, it's just yeah. And they these mm. vam vampires have been with us since the early days of the universe. Mm. Almost as long as there's been life, there have been the undead. 
you could say. Uh, Ooh, so you're that's chuckling. a nice, yes. oh, well, <laughs> you know, be a, could be a nice tagline for this. Mm. So yeah, what? Let's mm. have it, please. The the novels have um, picked up on this. Paul Cannell was very keen on it. He brought the van. Yeah. Oh yes, he, they were yeah. they were in there quite quickly, seeing it was a good thing to mine. Mm. Wasn't that the two parts of? Didn't they do a crossover? So they had a new adventure and one of the first mysteries. Yeah, yeah, Goth Opera and All Blood Harvest. Lost which, Stories. Yeah, that was the pair. Yeah. Mm. Both very good in their own way. Um, mm. I, so I would like to see that, and I think just as, as my attempt to sum all this up, what you could do with that is actually perfect the fusion of actual, real, proper vampires and science fiction. It's it's there in what we've already heard about in State of Decay with the, you know <laughs> silly things like bow ships, and um, I, th- mm. I think we can move on from the giant gloved hand. Um, <laughs> emerging from an unconvincing yes. cardboard yeah. floor. Mm. Mm. Let's have it. Let's have it, yeah, please. Come on, Chibnall. I love the idea of the bow ships and everything. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I necessarily want to see fleets of vampires flying through space. I mean, I can't really picture that. that I think that's those specific mm. details are something that need to be kept <laughs> in the mind's, mind's eye. But Yeah. We can have a nice um, uh, animated sequence like we had in... Uh, the last series, that would be the way to show it. Yeah, but vampires are the original all-purpose villain who can be anywhere, they can infiltrate, they can look like one of us, mm. they can have infiltrated our society, they can work on any scale. And Doctor Who could mm. could take them to scales vaster than we've ever seen them before. Mm. So what have you got planned for next year, Chibbers? Throw it in the bin. We want vampires. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting your comment also about the sort of dodgy c- CGI monster of the week. That you know every era of Doctor Who gets mired in you know what's current. You know clearly Barry Letts tripped over CSO. It, it allowed him to do a whole bunch of things that he couldn't have done otherwise, but he pushed it far too far. Hmm. And I think you know that this this era of Doctor Who, you've got the terrible CGI in the titles. You've got the pretty dodgy C, uh, um, CGI with the, um, the the clouds at the end of the <laughs> episode, mm. and yeah, you know we we get a bunch of of, of monsters turned out, but you know, because we can do CGI, then then we do. But I don't know. Maybe in the end, it doesn't actually help. It it, it looks kind of exciting in in. 2010 because we haven't seen it all that much up to that point but then it's just one of a, as you say of, of an array of similar things and in and in 2020 or 2030 or 2050 it's going to look equally yeah. antiquated I, I hadn't even t- touched up on the end of the story I really drifted out when um, when it reached its supposedly epic conclusion that just I was just getting flashbacks to the idiot's lantern with uh, the yeah it, yes. it was it's funny you should say that because that's exactly it, what I wrote. It just kind of feels like a script editor has said, "Can we have a bit more action at the end?" Can mm. I don't know. I, and Dalits in Manhattan does a similar, has a similar oh, yeah. um, climb the tower yeah. kind of thing. Uh, as, as of course, does Ace in Defender. Um, <laughs> <Ace of> <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, yes. I, I, I think there's one more thing I just have to say. Actually, I. I, I I'll never forgive myself if I don't get this in there. 
Um, any fans of Doctor Who and Vampires should really listen to Jagun Lightfoot. Jagun Lightfoot box set 12, <laughs> which is the Vampire Special. It includes two stories um, co-written by me, including School of Blood, which is Jagun Lightfoot Ooh. does Lust for a Vampire. And you get to see Nicky Wardley, that's Catherine Tate's mate, and Char- uh, Charlie Hayes, which, uh, Wendy Pabry's daughter. They, they play two very close yeah. young um, female vampires in a girl's... <laughs> convent um, it's terrific stuff it's it's a fine uh, story as indeed it's, 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 sounds it's, like uh, I think it was rated 11 out of 10 on, on all the best forums and, um, and <laughs> the ones that sh- which failed to rate it that highly closed down out of shame shortly afterwards <laughs> <laughs> I think you were going to say it was rated 18 <laughs> <laughs> I tried I still have that version in a word document somewhere for when the world catches up with my my fevered <laughs> imaginations. Oh, I've stunned mm. you into silence. No, well, I mean, you, you'll have mm. noticed that, that I almost praised you for a moment. Oh, so that's, uh, did you? So, uh, but the, you I missed it. Certainly can't go, <laughs> can't go <on> with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think clearly my, my main feeling at the end of this story was the clip of Amy's choice, thinking, oh, damn, we should have chosen that one. We'll get there. <laughs> 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 Uh, the uh, the fact that we choose these at random, and uh, the theme element, I think, is you know as random as we're going to get without actually spinning a a wheel mm. or rolling a twenty one sided die, uh, means that we you know we're going to get the filler episodes as, as often as we're going to get the big ones, mm. or indeed the good filler ones and the mm. naff big ones. They're the four types of Doctor Who story, by the way, just in case. Yes. <laughs> that matrix yeah. of of import versus quality. I, th- I think I think we've had all of those already. Yeah, I mean for, for sure. You know, ones where we that are supposed to be brilliant that we've not been that impressed with, and ones that are, that are supposed to be rotten that we've actually quite liked. Um, but but we've fallen the um, the conventional side this time. So we're supposed to be looking at how Doctor Who changes across the decades. Sometimes the there are many many decades this time we're only talking about what are we talking about 22 years. 22 years yes. oh no 21 yeah you're right so hmm it's interesting from that point of view because I would hmm? don't let me interrupt oh sorry I was just going to say I would I would feel like you know watching Fenric I, I know okay you had the once you look past the fact that it's recorded all on OB, mm. Fenwick, to my mind, stands up a lot better now than I think Vampires of Venice. I think Vampires of Venice probably looks more dated in terms of the, you know, in terms of the effects and so on, and uh, than than Fenwick does. It's it's prettier. It's it's HD and so on, but but. Yeah, I mean, in in the end, the 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 relentless pace and ideas of Fenric are gonna make it win, I think. Hmm. And, and allow you to see past the sort of standard definition four by three video. We haven't hmm. really touched on Ace, and I don't think we've got time to now. So let's make a let's make <sighs> a a note that next time we touch upon the Seventh Doctor era. We need to have a look at whether Ace really does feel closer to... I mean, you know, I've, I've said it's 21 years gap. If we were talking about... It, it could be as little as 16 years, couldn't it, if we chose an Eccleston. Mm. And then we could look into whether Ace really was... Had, does have more in common with the new series than with the old. Mm. 
She's definitely closer to... I'll, I'll just say, <laughs> uncontroversially, I think it's, she's got more in common with Amy than she has with Melanie Bush. But mm. that, may not be a fair, that may not be a fair comparison. <laughs> Next time. But has, she, but, but has she got more in terms... More in common with her than, say, Sarah or Joe? I don't know. Possibly not. Because, uh, I mean, I think, you know, Melanie is definitely a slightly synthetic companion. Yeah. Do you, th- do you think that the line people often draw between Ace and Rose is specifically Ace and Rose? Because they're both, you know, teenage girls from mm-hmm. council estates. Do you think that's it's something superficial there rather than that, anything about the depth of characterization? Do you th- and do you think, are you saying that Amy is more of a traditional, despite the modern, you know, superficial modern trappings, she's more of a traditional Doctor Who companion. Well, the, the trouble is that, that that Amy is a character, isn't she? I mean, she's she's does nothing. She's she's not realistic in the sense that. <laughs> How dare you? Well, but I live in a small village in the middle of nowhere, and it's full of strippers. Sorry, kiss a grounds, kiss a grounds, kiss a grounds, please. Yeah. But but. But precisely that, 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 you know, that her character is entirely synthetic, created by a middle-aged man. Oh, sorry, plot strand. Yeah. 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 No, 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 indeed. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a middle-aged man's idea of a girl, isn't it? And uh, where, whereas you might say that, okay, I mean, uh, Ace isn't, isn't perhaps massively different, but, but, but yeah, I mean, Rose does seem to come more from a, a, a natural environment. Hmm. And and potentially some of the other earlier characters in Doctor Who do as well. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to separate out the. It's hard to separate out the characters from the, and the the obvious big thing that kicks off in in the Cartmel era, and and you know carries through pretty consistently into across you know across the new series is is that we have stories that are focused on the companions. Hmm. And that relate to the yeah, and that relate to the campaigner's backstory and and background and so on, you know, more or less successfully, depending, you know, depending. But whether that actually affects how the actual characters are, how fully rounded the char- characters are, or whether we, you know, whether we just think, oh, you know, this set of characters starting in 1987 are much more fully rounded because we keep going back to visit parts of their. You know, bit, you know, to experience parts of their normal life and their past and so on, which we don't really get with anyone before that. But, but yeah, I don't know. It certainly never stopped me thinking that Sarah Jane was a was a realistic character. Hmm. I, I was just musing that that I think there are, I think there are definitely companions in Doctor Who that have been, you know, created in a laboratory. For a particular situation, so it feels mm. that that you that you would very much struggle to stick into anything moderately realistic, and yet there are other companions that do appear to have slipped in from some you know close to real life. <laughs> mm. They're sort of adjacent to the sort of people you might meet, and I think we've I think we've had a sprinkling of each of those in in both the original series and the new. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I think, I think, I think, I think uh, what what Giles has said is right. That that it's it's more it's more about the attitude of the character development 
of the of the of the characters of of Ace and Rose that makes them similar rather than necessarily the background of them. Good. Vampires. Well, it'd be nice if we had some. I think I think is is uh, probably our conclusion mm. in summary. Yes. Are there any more vampires? Not so we could do State of Decay and Smith and Jones, couldn't we? If we wanted to do a part two on vampires. Mm, if we wanted to do Smith and Jones again. Yeah. Have oh, we done it already? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was I on that one? Uh, it was the Moon's one, so we we, we, we no, I missed it with Moonbase. We I missed that. The moon base, I don't think. Yeah. Oh dear. Mm. Oh well. Apologies. Apologies if I've repeated anything that I didn't say last time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't recall you saying any of that on the episode. Mm. So I think. <laughs> So, so thanks, uh, thanks, Giles and Paul, for your uh, splendid observations on these two stories. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. And, and, and for coming to terms with uh, with the theme that Simon left us with. Yeah, <laughs> like Liam was holding the baby. <laughs> uh, and uh, look forward to um, joining you again soon when we come up with an equally preposterous pairing. Hooray! Hey, blended. So, are there any, um, no, forget I said that. You carry on, you're in charge. <laughs> Only nominally. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.